This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show 17. Contrary to what a lot of people believe, including the economists, population growth has never been the biggest driver of property prices. I know at a logical level that makes no sense to people, but that's not an opinion. That is a statement supported by a big body of evidence right throughout Australian history and locations all over the country. Hey, commercial property community, how are we all doing? Thanks for joining me once again today. I'm your host, Andrew Bean, and we have an absolutely ripper show lined up for you today, and here it is. Chris Lang explains how he handles renegotiating during due diligence. He shares how to come across as being open and flexible rather than demanding. He also shares an interesting story about how a vendor tried to withhold information about the sprinkler system from one of his clients. Simon Presley from Propertyology stops by to share his analytical view on the future of Australian residential property. He explains why he believes there is a national property boom coming. Yes, you heard right, a national boom. And where the opportunity lies for commercial investors. He also sheds light on how working from home is going to play a huge role in the transference of demand. I'm definitely going to go back and listen to this one a few times. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. Go to www www.commercialpropertyshow.com.au Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. Our guest today is a buyer's agent and a mentor to many. It's Mr. Chris Lang. How are you, mate? I'm well, and you? I'm fantastic, buddy. How's life in lockdown treating you? Well, it's been pretty tough over the last six to eight weeks, but I think, God willing, we'll come out of it okay. Yeah, I guess by the time this airs, you'll be free. Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully. All right, mate. So today we're continuing our negotiating tactics series, and we're up to part three, renegotiating during due diligence. Now, Chris, this can be a little bit of a touchy subject. What terms do you usually tackle first when renegotiating during due diligence? Well, the reason for having a due diligence period is to enable you to seek changes if everything isn't as you were led to believe. In other words, my approach from the beginning is you want to give the vendor the impression you believe everything they say, 
all you're doing is reserving the right to check it out. And in the process of doing that, and there, there are a number of aspects that you're going to look at, obviously the financial, particularly the physical, and that falls into a number of categories. There's the, the structural component, the air conditioning and things like that, lifts. Then you've got the hydraulics, the fire system and so forth. So there are a number of aspects that you will form part of your due diligence study. And so depending what evolves from that, you will want to seek rectification if anything isn't right. Now, what I do with my team is the arrangement I have with them is that they, within 48 hours, will come back to me with a comprehensive but reasonably concise email. It might be a page and a half, A4, but it virtually tells me that most of everything is comes up smelling roses. However, there might be one, two, three, four things, sometimes mostly minor, sometimes major. And if it is significant, they will put a dollar cost beside whatever is required to rectify that. Now, the reason I want them to come back quickly, even though we might start out seeking 28 business days for the due diligence study, invariably it'll be paired back. It might come back to say 10 business days, but when you've got weekends, that's effectively at least two weeks, probably a bit longer. So by coming back within 48 hours, you go back to the selling agent and he to his client, the vendor, and you raise the issues that are of concern. Now, the reason for doing it early is that they can't then complain, well, you left it till the last minute and you're holding us to ransom. You're not at all. You're going back and say, well, look, you told us it will led us to believe that everything was fine. We found this, that and the other thing are a problem. It's going to cost us, I don't know, pick a figure, $5,000 to rectify these. How do you want to handle it? So that then provides them with the opportunity to say, I mean, if it's a developer who's built the property and, and it's effectively brand new, you're not going to have a problem. They'll want to fix that themselves because they have a certain pride that they don't want to let a property pass that's not up to scratch. Other clients or vendors I've had have simply said, well, if it's $15,000, let's make a cash adjustment at settlement and you fix it up yourself. Probably the better way to go because then you know the work being done is to a proper standard rather than something just to get it across the line so settlement can proceed. So that's more or less the way I tackle it. Okay, so is it a common thing to renegotiate during every due diligence period? Like with your clients, does it always happen or is it not that common? Well, if you've got a property that is sort of under a million and a half, two million, I'm talking a strata title property, you probably wouldn't have a due diligence period. And I say that because if there are any issues and the property has been built for a couple of years or so, they would have been found already by the existing owner and the existing tenant. So you wouldn't normally have a due diligence period for that because, I mean, to do a full-blown due diligence study, that's going to cost you anywhere from, you know, four dollars to $10,000. So you want to know there's some issues. Now, what you might do is have the vendor confirm and warrant that there is no outstanding capital requirements or levies that are going to be imposed by the owner's corporation 
in the foreseeable future. So that gives you the, the comfort you need that, that there aren't any issues involved. Now, that if you have a standalone property, however, and generally they're more in the sort of two million plus, you probably would want to do a due diligence study because there isn't that comfort of a number of other owners in the property that have found issues that you may not have because you're not yet the owner, be aware of. So as I said, if it's a smaller property, I wouldn't be going to the expense. But if it's a a larger or standalone property, then I would probably ask for a due diligence period. You make that concurrent with the settlement period so that it's not additional to the 60-day settlement. How do you approach the agent with this when you're renegotiating your due diligence? Is there any kind of tips you can give the listeners? Well, there's no hard and fast rule. I mean, they know you're doing a due diligence study. They will arrange for the consultants that you have to go through the property. So it's just simply coming back and I generally provide them with an extract from the short, concise email that I get from the consultant saying, well, look, here are one, two, three items that have been raised. How do you want to handle it? Now, obviously, the agent wants the deal to go ahead. They don't want to. I mean, the contract is subject to you doing the due diligence. So if you're not happy, the way I structure the clauses, you, for whatever reason, can withdraw. So that's the last thing the selling agent wants to have happen. So In many respects, they become your best salesperson with the vendor because if they take it, they look at what you're raising and say, well, it seems pretty reasonable to me, they're likely to get it across the line with the vendor. Okay, so when you go back to the agent, is your first attempt to negotiate, is that always on price or you just said, how do you want to handle this? Do you wait for them to come back with the price or where do you go from there? Well, at that point, the last thing you want to be doing is making demands. By saying, how do you want to handle it? You've been quite flexible. I mean, the vendor may, as I said, have a building background and say, well, look, no, look, it's much cheaper for me to go in and fix it with my tradespeople than it is to pay an amount and have you fix it. Alternatively, you might negotiate an adjustment at settlement. So you never talk about a price reduction. It's just effectively a cash adjustment at settlement. Okay, fair enough. So it goes back to maybe what you said in part two, where you paid someone into a corner, but you always allow them a way out. Correct. Yeah. Is it possible to create a win-win situation when you're renegotiating or is there always a winner and loser? Well, at this point, you finalise the commercial terms of the deal. We're really looking at, and you've got to think from a vendor's point of view, the vendor, once a contract's exchanged, thinks that the deal is done. So they, assuming that the rectification issues are not huge amounts of money, they probably look at it and say, well, you know, I felt I probably might have got a better price than I had wanted in the beginning. I'm prepared to allow a $5,000 cash adjustment at settlement to have this problem go away. So it's not really the same as negotiating the price or other terms. This is more allowing them as best you can to save face because in their mind, they think their property is perfect. Now, you through an independent party have found that that's not the case. So you just have to allow them to save face. If the other party doesn't want to budge, how long should you persist and when should you walk away from the whole deal? To a degree that it will have been coloured by how cooperative everyone was on the way through in getting to this point. 
And I mean, if the vendor has been bloody minded all the way through, well, then you've got to think, well, this is just yet another issue to be resolved. We had one recently, it was a, a property for a client, about four and a half mil, and the vendor was just absolutely impossible to deal with. And the solicitor wasn't much better. And we ended up doing a deal at what I thought was a pretty full price. Now, we did our due diligence and we didn't actually find anything wrong that we didn't expect to find. We knew there was some asbestos in the building and so forth. But So that was an issue we had to live with. So we just had it confirmed that it wasn't any worse than we thought. Anyway, four days before settlement, the tenant who we'd been in touch with rang and said, do you realise that the sprinkler system is connected but doesn't work? It was news to us. So we got in touch with the selling agent who got in touch with the owner and they said, oh, it's your problem. We said, no, it's not our problem because the building doesn't comply. So anyway, there's a lot of carry on back and forth. And in the end, they ended up having to get City West Water or whoever it was out there. And settlement didn't occur when it was and They threatened us with penalty interest for not settling and and we said, well, you know, the problem, clearly you were aware of it because we found out that Chubb Fire Systems had alerted them to it three or four weeks beforehand, but the vendors hadn't told anyone. So we withheld settlement and in the end negotiated a deal where they would rectify it and we would settle, but we would withhold $25,000 until the problem was resolved at their expense. And eventually it did settle and we released the $25,000. But that was a little bit different because it wasn't something that actually came. I mean, you don't, it's pretty hard to test the sprinklers, right, mm. uh, with the tenant in place. But it was an example of just standing firm with a, a vendor, which was pretty much in transit and on the way through in the negotiations and effectively getting them to dip in their pockets. And I think it probably cost them about 20000 to fix. All right, Chris, so are there any other tips that you would like to put forward for renegotiating during due diligence? Well, the important thing is that if you feel you need it, you've got to get it inserted in the contract at the beginning. The extent to which you undertake your due diligence is entirely up to you, but you need to reserve the right to do it. And I mean, I know I've had instances where I've requested a due diligence period and the selling agent said there's no way the owners will agree to it. Well, that's part of the reason why I include it in writing in the very initial part, because I know he's obliged to pass it on. And in actual fact, in all my time, I've not had a vendor who's genuine to sell not agree to a reasonable due diligence period. So if they won't agree to that, my first response is obviously, there's something wrong with the property what are you hiding because if a vendor believes their property's sound they'll allow due diligence yeah that's right so mate you have a free giveaway for the listeners do you want to speak about that yeah i've got an investor's guide which i make available at no cost and if you want to put it under this podcast well they can happily download that and i'm sure that'll help them with their moving forward with commercial property beautiful so i'll put that link in the show notes all right chris we'll wrap it up there And if you'd like to ask Chris a question directly, then you can jump on the Commercial Property Show website and write your question in the forum, and Chris will answer you directly there. All right, today's guest has been Chris Lang. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. At Developer Life, we want to help you unlock your financial freedom. 
If you have a big backyard that's getting too hard to maintain and you want to downsize without the trouble of moving, we offer a subdivision service to New South Wales residents. We manage the entire subdivision and sale of the land for you. There could literally be hundreds of thousands of dollars waiting to be unlocked right in your own backyard. Head over to our website to request a free subdivision assessment today. That's www.developalife.com.au Back again to share his analytical mind is the award-winning buyer's agent, Mr. Simon Presley. How are you, mate? Really good, Andrew. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm fantastic, buddy. Thanks for being on the show again. Always a pleasure. Enjoy it. Excellent. Simon, there have been a lot of economists and market analysts who have been and still predicting the end of JobKeeper is going to trigger a GFC event times 10. But you're predicting the polar opposite to that, and I personally love it. You even published an article titled Property Boom Before Christmas. So, mate... What are the drivers you're seeing suggest there is going to be a national boom before Christmas? Yeah, I guess before I answer that, I guess the first thing I'll say is during times of extreme adversity, uh, populations are either significantly damaged or enhanced. So either a big bunch of economists are going to look like heroes or I'm going to look like a loser or uh, or vice versa. No, we're very confident with our forecast and with all due respects to economists, we've always maintained that they're not property market specialists. It's not their core business. It's not their fault if, if journos keep seeking out their opinion on property markets. They go to the wrong people, to be frank. Why we don't think it's an Armageddon? Well, firstly, I, I think it's important to say that I'm not saying it's a really rosy place and, you know, there aren't people that are going through some hardship. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm highlighting is that property markets are actually very, very complex and it's never as easy as just sort of saying, Oh, look, if they close the borders and we don't get any immigration, prices can't grow if if we don't have population. Or if we lose jobs, prices can't grow. They are two of many, many components. What's underpinning property markets right now, and our latest report that you're referring to, Andrew, we're just being consistent with what we said in March. When the coronavirus hit Australia, we put our chin out, we published a report, and we said we think the pause button will be pressed for a few months. You know, while we're in lockdown and then whenever it is that we start to relax these restrictions, we feel that uh, property prices will rise and they'll rise a lot. And I guess we've just reinforced that in our recent report. The fact is, is that there is just not much for sale or for rent in almost all of Australia. So whilst we have an understandably lower volume of transactions of buyers in the market, it's still more than enough to put a lot of pressure on prices because there's just nothing there. So it really comes back to that supply and demand issue. It is, but I must have been, I cringe every time I hear those two words because it sort of implies that property is really, it's a simple formula of one plus one equals two. And supply is a simple word and demand is a simple word. But the things that actually influence demand are the things that influence supply are, are numerous which makes this property market, each individual town and city, a very, very complex property puzzle. And it's why forecasting is so damn difficult. Yeah, that's right, mate. So what cities and towns do you foresee to benefit the most from this? It is easiest to answer that question by listing the ones that I guess are at risk. Okay. Um, Because large parts of Australia, 
I think are on the cusp of entering a boom. And I know that's a big, bold statement in the context of what's been reported in this country over the last six months. So Melbourne's lockdown is, all of Australia was in lockdown, wasn't it? Middle of March to most of April, really. Melbourne's recent lockdown was something that was unique to them. It didn't happen anywhere else in Australia. And it was much harder than the national lockdown. And only time will tell how that severe lockdown will affect Melbourne's economy. We've got some significant concerns for it. I wouldn't be surprised if this next quarter and the lead up to Christmas, if Melbourne actually produces some price growth because of those who retain their job, they couldn't buy during that lockdown and they are jumping out of their cocoons at the moment and there's still very little properties for sale in Melbourne. What will be interesting in Melbourne will be 2021 and 2022 to see the volume of people exiting the city of Melbourne, relocating somewhere else and or distressed sales. So that is a market, if you're a homeowner, uh, I would say it's life as usual. If you're an investor, you've got all of Australia to pick from. There's no need to uh, put your toe into a market with no risks. Sydney, the germ that I call it, the coronavirus, it breeds in congestion. Sydney is our most congested city. From an economic point of view, it's a tack on household budgets. Sydney has the highest mortgage. Sydney also, before the coronavirus and still today, has its highest vacancy rates in its 230-year history. So none of those are good fundamentals. So again, if I'm an investor, no matter where I live, that's an easy cross that one off my list, don't invest there. To a lesser extent, some mild concerns about Geelong, not anticipating major downturns, but again, if you're an investor, you don't need to go there. And uh, and mild concerns about the Gold Coast. Rest of Australia, exciting times ahead. Why do I say that? Really tight volume of properties listed for sale. In a lot of cases, not only tight rents, they're at crisis stage. Some markets we're active in at the moment, Andrew, I just got an email from a property manager yesterday saying, oh, your client's property settled. We've got the first open home tomorrow to get a tenant for them. They've got 30 groups registered. This is 24 hours before the event started. 30 groups registered and they've already received three rental applications sight unseen. And the, the, the rent that the tenants have applied for is 450 bucks a week. And we appraise it $380 a week. Wow. So that's not Sydney and Melbourne, but large parts of Australia, that's what conditions are like at the moment. And when you've got so few properties available to buy or to rent and Large parts of Australia have no cases of coronavirus today and haven't had them for a long time. To them, it's business as usual. And lots of economies are expanding. Uh, first home buyers have never been more active in Australian history than right now. Never been more active. They've got all sorts of incentives. They've got record low interest rates. Existing owner-occupiers, a lot of those who own a home have equity and have confidence in job security, which is about 80% of Australia, to be frank, they're going... I'm going to take advantage of this, and they're upgrading. Uh, so that's putting pressure on property prices as well. They can afford and you know can justify buying a, a better quality home. So it's not the doom and gloom. It, we are in for some really good times. So, mate, shutting the borders is obviously not a good thing for population growth. How is that going to impact the overall marketplace, and, and do you see that being a big factor in future? Yeah, when you say start, um, closing the borders, I assume you mean the international border? Or yeah, international border. Yeah. Yeah, so Australia's, well, firstly, contrary to what a lot of people, including the economists, well, contrary to what they believe, population growth has never been the biggest driver of property prices. I know at a logical level that makes no sense to people, but that's not an opinion. That, that is a statement supported by 
a big body of evidence right throughout Australian history and locations all over the country. In a typical year, our population grows by 1.5%. About two-thirds of that 1.5% increase is overseas migration. That equates to about 230,000 people per year coming from overseas. And the other one-third is what's called natural increase, which is the difference between births and deaths. So let's think about births and deaths. Babies don't buy properties. And I would argue that when someone dies, they add supply. They don't add demand. Yep. When someone arrives in Australia from overseas, I can assure you they don't jump off the plane, grab a taxi and go to an open home and buy a property. That is far from, it's an expensive thing to do. It's a big decision. That may be years and years and years before they do that. They need to find somewhere to live, but they would have sorted that out before they get off the plane. Either they're renting a property or they're staying with family and friends or whatever. So population growth never is the biggest driver of property prices. Overseas migration, it's likely we won't have any for at least 12 months, maybe a few years. Who knows, really? But a big chunk of, of overseas migration, about 80% of them, choose Sydney and Melbourne to live in. So if Sydney and Melbourne are used to that increase in their population from overseas migrants each year, well, they're not going to see it, you know, until the international opens up. That's more likely to affect Sydney and Melbourne rents than property prices because, as I said, most of the overseas migrants rent. They're not going to be arriving, you know, you're not going to have those 200,000 people a year arriving here looking to rent in Sydney. Melbourne and those markets already have high vacancy rates. So that's how it's going to affect the, the international border closure is going to affect the rental markets largely in Sydney and Melbourne. Okay, so if the population growth isn't the biggest driver, as you said, in your opinion, what is the biggest driver? It's the relationship between the number of properties available to buy. So I guess it's the sellers. How big a volume are sellers out there? And it's comparing that volume to the number of buyers for sale. So um, at the moment, because of the, the pandemic that we're in, large parts of Australia, there are fewer buyers today than in a normal year. That makes sense. I think most people would understand that. But it doesn't mean there are no buyers. And even though it's fewer buyers than normal, the volume of properties listed for sale is a lot, lot less than what it normally is. In a lot of cases, it's never, ever been this low. So it's all the things that, I guess, affect buyer behavior. So job security is one of those. Some people don't have job security at the moment, but there is still an overwhelming majority of Australians who do have job security. So it's not that we buy property every day, but if they were going to buy property in 2020 without a coronavirus, they're probably going to do it anyway. And in fact, since the coronavirus, there's been more incentives to do that with various support packages and stimulus packages and record low interest rates. And contrary to the, the doomsdayers who uh, you know want to constantly talk about unemployment rates being higher, yes, they are, but it doesn't mean that there's no jobs being created. Large parts of Australia are adding a lot of jobs each and every day. And we've heard a lot in the last last couple of months about all these new stimulus packages. The list is longer than what we've ever seen. Again, the doomsdays tend to focus on the $1.1 trillion debt to fund these stimulus packages. Well, okay, yeah, the debt's not bad. Depends on what you're borrowing the money for. They're not borrowing the money to spend on poker machines. There's an opposite side to the liability in the balance sheet, and that's the assets. What are they using that money for? To build lots of stuff and to create lots of jobs. So that's the good side of it. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot of jobs like companies that have come out of coronavirus just purely out of the woodwork because they're seeing a need for, say, more face masks or something like that. 
it's one of those things it's just really stimulated the market to create solutions for the coronavirus it is and again i'll deliberately keep saying it andrew i know who the majority of australians still have the same job today as what they had in march and some of those have had significant pay rises. You know, they work in an industry that they're thankful for the coronavirus. Some of these things I wouldn't have thought of, but you go to a bike shop. You know, I went there, uh, my, my son had a birthday during this coronavirus and he wanted a bike. So I went to a bike shop and as we all did probably in March, April, you, you know, sympathetically talk to the shop owner and the, and the retail attendant, or, you know, how are you going? And the constant theme was never been busier. Because there are some things we can't do for the coronavirus, but we then complement that with doing something differently. And lots of manufacturing businesses have never been busier. Different types of retail products have never been busier. So if, if you're a shop retail that sells suits, you're probably really struggling. But leisure wear is going through the roof, you know, so people still need clothing. It's, it's amazing what's happening. But yes, the, some industries are struggling. Some have never been busier. So going back to the drivers, with the data... How do you see demand? Is it only a lag measure seeing how many people are actually buying properties? Or how do you actually see through the data the demand in a market? Yeah, um, look, for me, I have respect for real estate that it's a long-term game. And so we can look at, you know, the here and now, what's happening today. An example of that is an auction clearance rate. You know, that's what happened on Saturday. But that might be useful for someone if they're looking to buy on Saturday and sell on Monday. But that's not how real estate works, is it? A share investor might do that. A property investor doesn't do that. So we need to respect that property is a long-term game and look at look at information that has, a, a, I guess, a longer gestation period. And for that, for us, it's a lot of decisions that different businesses will make and different levels of government will make that are going to influence jobs. Is a decision made today going to have a positive impact on jobs? Is it going to create jobs in the future months and years? Or is a decision that's made today going to have a negative impact on jobs? Now, how do we do that? I'm a nerd. I literally would spend on average three to four hours every single day, including weekends, skim reading every newspaper in Australia, not just their capital city newspapers. Um, the best investment opportunities more often than not aren't in the capital city. So, so it's newspapers. It's all sorts of industry reports. It's a whole heap of government reports. And it's the sum of all those parts. It's not one decision. It's a big body of evidence in relation to a particular town or city that gives us enormous confidence that, you know, here now in the back half of 2020, we're really confident there's going to be a lot more jobs in two or three years' time in City X. So, you know, when that happens, as it unfolds, the more jobs means that someone might relocate from somewhere else to, to that location to take up a job. But most importantly, the existing residents they gain more confidence in their existing job. Their salary is likely to increase. Their, I guess, ability to transact in real estate, either to purchase for the first time or to upgrade or to become an investor, that creates a bit of a swirl of more buyer activity, which puts pressure on property prices. Long answer, but I guess it's high one. There's no easy way for this. It's a full-time job. Oh, definitely. Definitely, mate. So in another article you recently published, you put forward an idea that the current council zoning plans are like a, a fried egg with everything surrounding the yolk. And you believe in future, this will become more like a scrambled egg. Can you just explain your thoughts there? Yeah, so it's not a, I don't think the fried egg uh, analogy I use there, you'll find in any in any journal. It's a, it's a propertyology <laughs> specific, you know, I just try to. I like it, I like it. <laughs> 
I do my best at times to try to explain something that might be complicated and try to simplify it for the general public. So if you think of any city, you know, Sydney, Brisbane, wherever, it's always congested in the city centre. That's where the highest buildings are. So that's the yoke. And if we go back generations, the head offices were always based there. And over time, as more as more big businesses set up office in the city centre, we then started to build high-rise apartments so that someone who might work in there every day has the choice of whether they also want to live there. And so the yoke just gets bigger and bigger. The white of the egg is our suburbs. And we're not saying that there's no jobs there, but we don't have the big high towers there. Now, what with coronavirus, we think that the yoke is going to become very, very scrambled. Again, something I said earlier, the virus breeds in congestion. We know that. A lot of people who might have normally worked in, in the city centre have either lost their job totally or they've been able to retain their job, but they've had to work from home rather than going to town. And this is now, we're in our seventh month in Australia of this happening, and we may be years still doing this. So that's more than long enough for new habits to create it. Uh, so I think what's going to happen over time, it's actually started to happen already, some businesses will relocate from that inner city office or shop to the suburbs because some people have chosen to work from home, and that home is in the suburbs, not in a inner city apartment. So some, that's already happened. Others will go one step further than that and they'll say, well, I'm going to permanently work from home. And having made that decision, home can now be anywhere. They might stay in the same home or they might move further out of town or they might move to a completely different part of Australia. And that's what we're calling a transference of demand. So that, you know, where they live now, if they move out, well, there's no demand for them in that property. But where are they moving to? And that's transference of demand. The egg's going to become scrambled. This is not a fad. I'm calling it a permanent structural change to Australian real estate. I think it's the end of my financial performance. It's the end of the inner city apartment. It's already been a problematic asset class before the coronavirus, and this is the final nail in the coffin. But that's going to create a transference of demand to somewhere else. It's going to make regional Australia even more popular than what it already was. It might make some acreage properties more popular. We're going to see a lot of change. Yeah, this is where the opportunity really comes in for, I think, the commercial investor. So what industries do you think will benefit most from the scrambled egg approach? Yeah, well, I guess it's some of the things we were talking about earlier that probably none of us really predicted the change of behaviour when I used the example of, you know, the bike shop and the person who sells caravans and, you know, fishing gear and all. You know, it's probably the answer to the commercial property question is think of all the goods and services that are more popular today than what they were at the start of this. Now, I haven't given a lot of thought to list those off for you. I've just given a few examples. But the answer to the question would be going through that thought process. There'll be lots of manufacturing businesses that are already busy now. And we know out of this week's federal government stimulus pack, uh, the budget, the federal budget was an absolute ripper. And in amongst the long list of stimulus packages there is, I think it was about $2 billion for our manufacturing industry. So, what are they going to be manufacturing? You know, and then where are those factories? In which parts of Australia are they going to be located? That would be how I would be thinking from a commercial property perspective. I certainly be really, really cautious about uh, inner city offices, and I own one of those. So whether that office is, if you keep existing tenant, might not be an issue. But not everyone will be able to keep that same tenant. Then what do you do with it? Do you sell it? Do you repurpose it? You know, there's some big decisions there. But as you, as you're talking about with inner city apartments. That's going to become increasingly problematic, but it creates opportunities elsewhere, and the same in the commercial space. 
So, mate, the industries that will suffer, are they just purely the ones that are just suffering now? I think so, yeah. I, I think that uh, it'll take some digging for commercial investors. It, it won't be, a, you know, here's a magic website that's got all your answers. It won't be as easy as that. But I think that if you can identify the changes in commercial property from, say, March to now, that's actually the indicator going forward. We're stuck with this virus, even if we have a vaccine developed, so the, the government themselves are saying best case a year away. But they don't know. No one knows. And, e- and even if in 12 months' time we had a vaccine, it doesn't mean the germ's gone because you can't insist that 25 million people take it. It's still going to be in our community for a long period of time. So the longer it's here, the more new habits become permanent as opposed to short term. How do you think the inner city markets will respond to the acceptance of working from home becoming the new norm? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch, isn't it, Andrew? Um, we're not saying that buildings are going to be knocked down or you know that the cities won't exist. I can't see that they'll return certainly anytime soon to how we have come accustomed to seeing an inner city. I really can't. I think it'll be years away, if ever. But they'll still exist. You're still going to have, you know, the head offices will still be based there. What's quite likely is they just won't have 100% of their workforce working in that really big office. You know, they'll, they might go on a shift basis where some people, where everyone still works five days a week, but, you know, two days at home and three days in the office. Or there'd be some people, I know Telstra have put memorandums out in their workforce and have said, if you want to work from home, we're happy to support you forever and a day. If you want to do that forever, that's okay. And if that home is no longer in a capital city where you're living now, that's okay. We've got used to Skype and Zoom and cloud computing and all that sort of stuff. That's been a really good thing that's come out of the coronavirus, in my opinion. Yeah, so do you see the the regional markets that are just a step outside of the capital markets being ones to really, really look into now? Definitely. And look, I'm really pleased for, for our regional communities. The, the fact is, over the last five, six years, certainly not saying every region, but the best performed property markets in all of Australia, with the exception of one capital city being Hobart, the best performed markets were regions for a variety of reasons. And now the coronavirus is going to create extra demand in more regions. And I think a beautiful thing that's come out of the coronavirus is we're talking about international borders being closed. An overall majority of Australians actually haven't explored their own country. They'll think nothing of going on overseas holidays for a month to somewhere, you know, another beautiful part of the world. They can't do that now. I spent a long time last week, Andrew, calling dozens and dozens of real estate agents literally all over the country and talking about what's happening in their market and what's happening in their community. Places like Orange and Dubbo, you know, the, the residents there say you can't book a restaurant now until the new year. You can't get any holiday accommodation until the new year. And that's not unique to them. That's large parts of Australia. So we're exploring our regions. And whilst I've been to all of them and love it, a lot of people haven't. And when they get there, they're going to go, wow, I wish I discovered this earlier. Yeah, I actually read your article and I saw that you said there's no vacancies. You can't get in. So yep. I wanted to go on an overnight trip on a long weekend last week. I called around in Newcastle to find anywhere we could stay for one night. Couldn't find one place that was vacant. Wow. there you go. Yeah. yeah, some of that might be uh, people who used to live in, say, Sydney, and if they work in the hospitality sector, for example, it's been the hardest hit. Some of those might have sort of gone, well, you know, they don't know when they'll get their job back, so they've quite understandably have taken some positive action and moved somewhere else where they thought there might be a better chance of getting a job or others are just just holidaying. But, I mean, look, some people have been to the odd regional location before for a holiday. Think of all the wineries right throughout Australia. 
think of all the beautiful coastal locations and the, the beautiful, you know, inland places that people go and like, I don't know, whether it's mountain biking or hiking or, you know, just exploring. So they might have been there before for a holiday. So clearly they have great lifestyles. Now people are going, why don't I permanently adopt that lifestyle? Yeah. And they will do that because they know that well, they sort of go, well, it does have a good lifestyle. Of course it does. That's why I went there for a holiday. I can use Zoom. I can use Skype. I can use cloud computing. I've been doing that at home anyway, so I can do that out here. And the cost of housing for a lot of people in these beautiful locations is a lot more affordable than where they used to be living. So when people step through all these things, they go, geez, it makes so much sense. And it doesn't mean that they will never go back to a capital city, but rather than perhaps what they've done for their life to date, live in a big city and occasionally venture out to a region, they'll flip that on its head and they'll permanently live in a beautiful region and occasionally go to the capital city for a conference or a, you know, an important business meeting. And you can do that. Most of these regional locations have really good airport infrastructure with daily flights you know, to and from the major capital cities. I know for a fact there are accounting firms and, and legal firms all throughout regional Australia that have done that before the coronavirus. Armadale is a great example of that in, in regional New South Wales. There are, there are a lot of smaller professional services firms that originally were based in, say, Sydney or Melbourne. But you're going to see a lot more of that now. Yeah, it's really exciting times. So, mate, I know we already touched on it before, but I just wanted to ask you again, once there is a vaccine, how relevant do you think working from home will be? Do you think it could just turn off? No, I don't think so. I know I'm not saying everyone's going to work from home, but the reality is is the, the official data which we took from the late last census, now that was completed. We all sat there on that one night in August 2016 and filled in the census survey. And one of the questions we had to answer in 2016 is, where is your predominant place of work? And one of the tick the box options was I work from home. Now, that might be a graphic designer, self-employed person or a, or a sparky that's got just, just work for themselves or something like that. So back in 2016, it was only 4% of our national workforce. I would not be surprised at all if that it would have to exceed 10% when all the dust settles from the coronavirus. Now, that might not sound like a big figure, but let me put some perspective around that. Our workforce is about 13 million people. So 10% is 1.3 million people. It was less than half of that working from home in 2016. So if we said roughly seven, 800,000 extra people permanently work from home, that's seven or 800,000 households. That's a big, big change. And I reckon 10% will prove to be conservative whenever it is we do uh, be, uh, next year we, when we do that census thing. It's not for everybody. There are certain jobs you just can't work from home. You know, if you're a manufacturer, we well, need a factory. And there are others where they can work from home, but it's not what they want to do or their boss won't let them do that. So it won't be for everybody. But 10% is by no means a stretch, I would suggest. So what advice do you have for listeners who are holding property in capital markets? I'd say don't panic. The things to consider are the most important consideration is for your personal cash flow from that individual asset. If it's a neutral position or only a short haul, a couple of thousand dollars, you know, it's, it makes the decision to, to hold much more palatable. But if that's not you, if it's costing you several thousands or in the tens of thousands to hold, you know, that becomes a more, you need to think, long and hard about you know potentially the right move for me is to 
recycle the capital you've got in that asset into a market that you can have more confidence of growth going forward and certainly taking control of the cash flow on that property. That's how I would process it. Great advice, mate. Well, it's been fantastic having you on the show again, and I can't wait to get you back on to talk about the national boom. Where can listeners go to find more about you and your company? Oh, thank you for that, Andrew. The Propertyology website, just propertyology.com.au. In the top uh, menu tab is uh, one of the options there is Insights. The report you've been referring to, the summertime boom, will be the latest blog there. There's another one, the fried egg we're talking about. That's in a report uh, titled Australian Real Estate Has Changed Forever. The fried egg is one thing that's featured in that, so I think people will find that really interesting. Love to get back in about 12 months' time, mate. Uh, I'm not a betting man, but... But I am an analyst, and I think uh, immediately before Christmas next year, we'll be talking about not the boom coming. We'll be going, wow, geez, look at all these markets that did all these good things in, uh, in the year just gone. Yeah, fantastic, mate. Sounds good. Today's guest has been Simon Presley. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Andrew. Alright, alright, that brings us to our newest segment to the show, and that segment is called Ripper Ripper Resource. In this segment, I'm going to share some resources that I have personally used, read, or listened to that have made a big difference in my life, and I think they deserve to be shared. So this week's Ripper resource is the Ultimate Jim Rohn Library. I actually stumbled across this audiobook because I kept on hearing his name mentioned in other people's audiobooks. Now, after listening to his full library of seminars and interviews, I can tell that he's helped so many people. He's touched so many people's lives and helped so many people become high achievers. He just has a special way of delivering things. He's very, very charismatic. And I think he's a really, really good person to listen to. So that is this week's Ripper Resource, the ultimate Jim Rohn library. Thank you to both my guests today. And special thanks goes out to Kevin McLeod for the music. Don't forget to jump on the Commercial Property Show website, sign up to be a member, and get your question answered in the forums. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, success is your duty, obligation, and responsibility. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.